0: Let's pray. Father, as we come to you tonight, we pray that you might speak your word to us. Lord, that you would open your word to us and and help us to hear the words that you have to say. Lord, that you might confront those ways in which We have not believed and walked with you as you called us to. May we repent, Lord, of the things that we have done that is dishonored, that is sin against you. And instead, we pray that you would speak to us the words of life. that We might know you, we might love you, we might walk in obedience to you. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, every church, whether it's a, a new church plant or whether it's an existing church, has to ask the question of who will we be—sort of a question of, of identity. And I've I've heard a lot of uh, church planters say one of the things they like about uh, planting a church is is that you get to start from scratch. You get to sort of do whatever it is that that you want to do. But is that really the reality of what takes place when? a new church plant is started. You know, do we as a church plant need to ask ourselves, how are we to be different than any other church in in Andover? Or should we ask ourselves, you know, should we have a certain focus or are we trying to reach a particular demographic? Well, I think that's oftentimes the question. It's almost like we have a blank slate. Hey, guys, what do you want to do? But what I want us to see in these opening sermons that we have uh, over the next several months is that it's not really about what we want to do, but it's really uh, about what Christ calls us to do. As a matter of fact, the sermon series that I've already started, we started it last month, it's entitled, Starting Strong, Building on the Basics. Starting Strong, Building on the Basics. And last time we looked at Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we saw that the church belongs to Jesus Christ. It's not Rick's church, it's not your church, it's not even the church of Heartland Presbytery who's overseeing this work, but it is Christ's church. And he is the one who not only loves it and created it, but he is the one who will build it up. And not only numerically, but together as a community to love one another. So as we think about the church and the fact that it belongs to Jesus Christ, We have to ask ourselves, what is it that he calls us to to do and to be as a church? And I want to suggest to you tonight that right at the top of the list is that Christ calls us to be a worshiping church. That Christ calls us to be a worshiping church. Now, we could talk about different aspects of worship. We could talk about Uh, uh, your personal worship time or your family worship time. We could talk about worship as a a way of life. And all those things are true and spoken of in Scripture. But tonight I want us to focus upon what Hebrews talks about where it says, Do not neglect the gathering together of the saints. That of corporate worship. That Christ calls the church to be one that gathers on a regular basis once a week on the Lord's Day at least, to come and to worship Him. And as we talk about worship tonight, I really want to talk about three things. First of all, the basis of our worship, or why do we worship. Second of all, the object of our worship, or who it is that we worship. And then third, the means of worship, or how are we to worship. So why we worship, who we worship, and how we worship. And so tonight, let me just begin by talking about the basis of our worship why is it that we worship i mean it isn't it interesting that every church i don't care of the denomination i don't care of the worship style i don't care what you know the, despite the differences that we have between churches isn't it interesting that every church worships why is that well Hughes Oliphant Old, in his book, Worship Reformed According to Scripture, opens with these words. He says, we worship God because God created us to worship Him. Worship is at the center of our existence, at the heart of our reason for being. So, in other words, God created every human being to worship. So that means every person you know, whether they're a Christian or not, worships. Now not necessarily gathering like this to worship, but they give their hearts or their allegiance to something. They they worship something. It might be sports, it might be their jobs, it might be their family, it might be that they worship themselves, you know, and the list goes on and on. You know, but that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the basis for worship. When I speak of worship, I'm talking about the true worship of God as he designed it, not a distorted false worship of idolatry that many people do. So before I talk about why we worship, let me just give you a quick definition of what worship is. Worship is really derived from the word worship. worthship. So to worship God is to assign his supreme worth. It is to uh, to assign to God supreme worth, acknowledging him to be the creator and Redeemer as He's revealed in His Word. Now that doesn't mean that we add something to God or we give something to God. All we're doing in worship is just acknowledging who He is. So we add nothing to Him at all. We just acknowledge who He is. And we worship God because of who God made us to be in the Lord Jesus Christ, namely His chosen and redeemed people of God. Even before the foundation of the world, God chose uh, to set aside a people and make them holy and blameless before Him. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. But He has brought us into His family, delivering us, His people from the bondage and punishment of sin by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If I might read from the words of Galatians three thirteen, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then Galatians 4, 5 says, To redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as his sons. In other words, God has chosen us, not so that we can rest contently in our lives, doing what it is that we want to do, but instead so that we might worship him. As the psalmist says in Psalm 100 Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. But we see, you know, if we have any doubts of the centrality of worship in the life of the church, we could even go back to the Old Testament. And I think it's interesting, if you think about... Moses, when he went to Pharaoh, what did he say? He went to Pharaoh and he said, God says, let my people go. But why did he tell him to let his people go? Because he says, God wants his people to go out into the wilderness and do what? Worship him. He didn't say serve him. He didn't say, so we can get away from you guys. He said, God is calling his people to come and to worship him. And when, when, of course, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and wouldn't listen to Moses, but then eventually when God made Pharaoh let his people go, then when the people went out, that is what they did over and over and over. They spent time in worshiping him. I mean, I think about even when they uh, encountered the Red Sea, after they walked through the Red Sea on dry land, and then it destroyed Pharaoh's army. In Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we read these words, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And so they, they worshiped and they praised the Lord because he had set them free, not only from the bondage of Pharaoh, but also as well from Pharaoh's army that was seeking to attack them. But then he goes on in Exodus 15, later on, down in verses 17 and 18, and he said, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary. O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Here we see that God has brought Moses And his people out of Egypt so that he might plant them on the mountain of his inheritance, which is Mount Zion, which is where Jerusalem was and where the temple would one day be erected. In other words, he brought them out and delivered them so that they might worship him. And then, of course, we see in the Ten Commandments that as God is giving the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments talk about the importance of our relationship with God and how we are to worship him so we see throughout Scripture you know different places where it talks about how we are saved to worship him Uh, we saw in Revelation 4 and 5 a picture of heaven and how the Saints and the creatures in heaven worship God but turn if you would to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 9 very familiar verses Uh, but I think oftentimes we focus on verses 8 9 and 10 And sort of forget what comes before that. But in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, we read this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? Why did he save us? Well, verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So in other words, for all eternity, so that God might have his church on display and the church may sing of his praises and worship him. So that's why we're saved, that we might, might worship him. Well, um, we could go on, time won't allow us, but you could look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 5 and through 9 and you could see where, where God is building His people to be a spiritual house to worship, a priesthood, a holy nation to, to praise God. But let me just uh, give you this quote by a 17th century pastor, Wilhelmus Abrekel. He was, lived from 1635 to 1711. This is what he says about our salvation that we have received as his people. He says, when the godly perceive that the beginning, middle, and end of their salvation, yes, everything proceeds only from God according to his eternal election, it will then stir up their soul to return to God all, uh, to God, and in all things to honor and glorify him, most heartily thanking him. In other words, when we come to realize what sinners that we are, you know, when we really understand the depth of our sin and that there is no goodness in us and that the only reason that we are here tonight is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And when that really gets down into our soul and grasps us and we understand that, then and only then are our hearts driven and motivated to worship and to praise Him. You know, I was at a presbytery meeting uh, earlier this month and there was a young man who was being examined for licensure in our in our denomination, you have to go through several examinations to become a preacher and they're pretty tough. And so this was this guy's first examination and he was standing before all the the pastors and all the ruling elders were sitting out where you're sitting and there was a a minister sitting up here asking this young man questions, and he had to answer them just as quick as the pastor was asking him. And so he was asking him, well, what's this, or what's that, or where do you find this in the Bible, or you know, what would you do in this situation? And he was just rattling off all these questions, and this young man was doing great. I mean, he was just answering every question, just boom, 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 boom. And I thought, man, I want to grow up and be a preacher like him. I mean, he was incredible. Well, then, Tony, the guy that was asking the questions... Asked the young man, he said, what is the gospel? And the young man stopped. And all of a sudden you sort of felt uncomfortable because you realized that he'd asked him a question that stumped the young man. And and so you sort of looked at him and you, you felt that moment of silence and uncomfortableness. And then all of a sudden I looked at the young man closer and I realized it wasn't that he didn't know the answer, It's that he was fighting back tears. And he had to catch his composure because he was so overwhelmed with the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, and uh, then he answered the question perfectly. But, you know, after he answered that, you could just feel this sort of this humility fall over the crowd. And all of us as ruling elders and teaching elders, as pastors and ruling elders, were sort of sitting there going, wow. I mean, nobody said anything, but it just was almost like everybody was thinking, you know, we can sort of fall into the trap of making this an academic exercise. But these are real things. These are awesome things that God has done and I, I want to I challenge all of us, but I especially want to challenge you kids that have grown up in the church. That you can come to church every Sunday and you might even be here tonight, not because you want to be here, because your parents drug you here and you're thinking, man, I can't wait till this is over so I can go home and I can do what I want to do. But it is my prayer that all of you kids, that all of us, that the gospel would get down into our souls and our hearts like that that we could come, and when we come, we come to worship the Lord, because we understand that we really are not as great as what we think we are, and that we need a savior to work in our lives. So first of all, that is why we worship. That is the basis, because God has redeemed us. So the object of our worship, what is the object of our worship? Well, God, God's work are the basis of our worship, so obviously, he alone is the object of our worship. So who are we to worship? God and God only. I mean, we read in John four twenty-three that worshipers are to worship the Father. Now, more specifically, you could say that we are to worship the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Scripture shows us that we worship the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, look if you or listen to the words of Ephesians 2.18. For through him, that is through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we see that work of the Trinity. But then in 1 Peter chapter 2: 5, I am going to read this verse. 1 Peter 2.5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the spiritual sacrifices are those sacrifices that the Holy Spirit leads us to offer in reliance upon Him. So, you see the work of the Holy Spirit there to make sacrifices to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we need to understand that our worship is first and foremost and always God-centered. That God is the only object of our worship. We see that in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, that God and God alone is to be um, that which we worship. Now you might say, yeah, that's not a hard one, so what? But I would suggest to you that we might struggle with that more than we might realize that the, the, the God-centeredness of worship shows us that there is no place for anyone else to be the focus of our worship. Let me read the words of Robert Rayburn. He says this, he said good worship services are not for the enjoyment of the worshipers. They are to provide an opportunity for devout believers to offer the sovereign God of the universe that adoration, praise, honor and submission of which he is worthy to receive that spir- and, and to receive that spiritual food which he provides true worshipers only through the word and sacraments. In other words, worship is not for uh, spectators to watch that worship is for participants. Worship is not for us, uh, but it is for the Lord God. But how many times do we come into the worship service and, you know, sort of subconsciously we're thinking, okay, you know, on a scale of one to ten, this one's about a six, not too bad, you know, or we walk in and go, wow, this one's really good. I really, I was really edified tonight. I really got something out of that. You know it's so easy for us to fall into that trap to think that worship is there for us and and it is true we are fed we are encouraged in the Lord we are strengthened in him as we come to worship but we are not the focus we are to be participants in worship not spectators now what's the difference between the two well think of a football game okay in a football game you have all these spectators and they're sort of stand they're in the stands and they're watching the football game and they're they're analyzing what's going on down there. You know, well, my team's playing well or boy, my coach really stinks tonight or wow, their their coach is really doing great and we have all this analysis of stuff that's going on. We're not part of it. We're sort of standing outside of it, but we're making sort of an analysis about it. But the players, on the other hand, they're participants. They're down there in the thick of it, in the middle of it. The coaches are down there trying to do everything they can to encourage their team to go and to win. And it's the same way with us. We come to worship the Lord. We are to be participants. We are in the midst of it to come and to worship and to praise the Lord. And, and whenever we find ourselves sort of standing back and beginning to analyze the service, we have just moved from being participants to spectators and we are no longer honoring the Lord our God. Worship is not the church's gift to the worshipers, but the worshipers gift to God. You know Psalm 116, 12, 13 says, what shall I render or what shall I give to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. So as you come to worship, it's good for us to stop and to ask ourselves, you know, as I come uh, to worship, you know, what what does the way I worship convey about what I think about God? You know, do I come, you know, at the last minute, um, just sort of rushing in because, oh yeah, I should be here at the worship service? You know, or is it something where we come in time and preparation to come before the Lord? You know, as we're preparing uh, worship services uh, to, to uh, like You know, the order of worship and stuff. You know, I have to be careful that I don't fall into the trap of, well, you know, I wonder if people will like this song. You know, I wonder if this will turn people off. That can't be our focus. Our focus has to be upon the Lord Jesus Christ and to understand that He is our God and we are to worship Him. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So what are the means by which we are to worship? How are we to worship? Well, when it comes to understanding how we worship the Lord, we we must turn to his word. And in John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus sets forth two basic principles that governs our worship. He says that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Now, there's some discussion as to what exactly these two terms mean, especially when it comes to spirit. Is that the human spirit? Is that the Holy Spirit? You know, um, but it seems safe to say that the first, that is the spirit, is more subjective or internal with respect to the worshiper, and the second is more objective or external to the worshiper. In other words, when you think about worship, we need to understand that first, the heart matters in worship. And second, that scripture must regulate the truth of that matter. If we miss either of these two fundamental purposes, our worship will degenerate either into, into sentimentalism. In other words, what is it that stirs my heart? What, you know, gets my emotions going? If we neglect the word of God, that's what we're left with is just sort of a what what will make me feel good. But likewise in the same way, if we neglect really coming with a wholehearted devotion to the Lord, then we can fall into the trap of just going through the motions. And so it is with our whole heart, with our whole person, that we should come before the Lord to worship Him as is directed by God's Word. So let's just look at these two real quick. First of all, how Scripture regulates how we are to worship. Jesus said that true worship is in truth. That truth... uh, um, is the Word of God, obviously. So this principle of Word-governed worship is from the second commandment. You know, in other words, how we are to worship. If the first commandment talks about who we are to worship, "You shall have no other gods before me," then the second tells us how we ought to worship. It says that you shall not make for yourself any graven image. Now you think, how does that? How is that telling me how I am to worship? Well, as human beings, we have a tendency to want to, to 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 have things that we can touch and we can see and we can feel, and and it's it was not uncommon in Old Testament Israel for them to be tempted to create idols, uh, not just idols of foreign gods, but even of God Himself. If you look back at Exodus 32, where they made. The golden calf of Israel. When Moses went up on the mountain and he was gone for a long time, and uh, so the people said, "You know, Aaron, make us uh, a god." And so he said, "Well, give me your gold," and he he puts it in the furnace, and he and out comes this calf that he makes. You know, it's interesting. The words that Aaron says, he said, "This is the god who brought you out of Egypt." You know, it was an abomination to the Lord. Because God is a spirit, right kids? You know this, God is a spirit and has not a body like man. And yet they were trying to put an image on God that was not befitting to who he was and his character. And so God is to be worshipped the way that he desires to do so and not according to our own imagination. John Calvin said, The law is a bridle to prevent men from turning aside to spurious worship. In other words, our temptation as human beings is always to worship the way that we want to. And that's why true worship of God abides by the standard of God himself, not by pragmatic concerns. You know, it's not uncommon uh, for, I've been in a lot of different churches, and I think this has happened in every church, where people will will, uh, go visit another church. Maybe they're traveling for the holidays or whatever, and they'll come back and they'll say, hey, preacher, I was at this church and, you know, this is what they did in their worship service. Why don't we do that? You know, now that's, that sounds very innocent. You know what? We can learn from each other, right? You know, what's, what's wrong with that? But it might seem innocent and harmless. But the problem is, is that oftentimes they don't take uh, those things that they saw and sort of run them through the grid of Scripture to see what God says. Instead, they just sort of have taken in, uh, without giving thought to it, the things that other churches do that may not be according to God's word. And oftentimes, uh, they're not according to God's word. But, you know, that's not new. That, that happened in Israel. Uh, if you want ter- to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12, Deuteronomy 12, 29 and following, God specifically warns Israel not to follow the worship patterns of the nations that are around them. He said, uh, Deuteronomy 12, 29 when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you, whom you go in to dispose and you dispose them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire of their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Um, So God exhorts us and his people to be careful to observe all that they say. I don't have time, but you can look at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 as well. So the Word of God is to direct us in our worship. But I would also say this, the Word of God is also to guide us in our worship as well. As we have worship services, we sing the Word, we pray the Word, we preach the Word, and we even see the Word as well. Now what I mean by seeing the Word, it's not like all of a sudden there's this aberration that you know shows up, but instead it's through the sacraments, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are visible signs of what it is that the Lord has done we see that and so you know it's my prayer that as people visit Kirk of the Plains that they will say wow the Bible is important to you isn't it you guys don't just read a couple of verses but you guys are like reading the Bible all the time and you you sing it and you do all this so the word of God is to direct our worship but also so it is we, we to be concerned about the heart matters as well And there are at least four heart attitudes that God is seeking from us as his worshipers. And I'll go through these very quickly. First of all, sincerity. God is looking for sincerity. One of the regular charges that Jesus brought against the Pharisees is that they were hypocrites, that they were not sincere. And when he calls them hypocrites, of course, uh, it means pretender. It, It was the idea of wearing a mask so that you might appear... Uh, like something that you're not and in their case they were wearing the mask of piety or holiness to cover up their disinterested heart because hypocrisy is the lip service of a disinterested heart and there's great danger in the show of religiosity and that we can hide from man the real situation of our heart here again Calvin says nothing pleases God that is not accompanied by the inward sincerity heart you know kids I would encourage you again to look at your heart when you come to worship youth do the same adults may we do that as we come before the Lord do we come sincerely to worship him Um, yeah I heard the story of a man who went to church with an angel as his guide of course is made up but you know every seat in the church was was taken it was filled up, and there, but there was something really strange about the worship service. You know, the musicians were running their fingers over their instruments, but there was no sound. The choir stood up to sing and they moved their lips, but there was no voices that came forth. The pastor stood to the pulpit and he read the scripture, but there was no sound that came from his mouth. The congregation uh, participated in the prayers, but nothing was heard. And then the preacher stood up again and, and preached the sermon, went through all the motions of the sermon, but not a sound was heard. And finally, the man who was with the angel turned to the angel and he says, what does this mean? I see that a worship service is being held, but I don't hear anything. And the angel replied, he said, you hear nothing because there's nothing to hear. He said, you see this service just as God sees it. These people are not putting their hearts into it, but are just going through the motions, and so God hears nothing. He hears only that which comes from the heart, and not that which comes from the lips only. Now that doesn't, I'm not, don't think that I'm saying that it shouldn't go through the mind as well, okay? But I'm just talking about people that are going through the motions. And as the angel was speaking back in the last pew, there was, they heard a child saying, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And the angel said, you are hearing the only part of the service that God hears. He hears this little child's prayer because she means what she says and puts her heart and her soul into it. You know, how often do we stand there and we sing uh, an entire song to the Lord and we get to the end of the song and we think, I don't even remember what I said. What was that song about? I don't know what happened. You know, it's so easy for us. You know, it's not that we seek to be insincere before the Lord but it can sort of sneak in with us unawares. But God calls us to be sincere as we come before him. But he also calls us to be humble. True worshipers require a brokenness of spirit when they come before the Lord. What does David say? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. But in Isaiah 57, verse 15, Isaiah says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That is somebody who is humble to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I mean, think of the words that we used in the call to worship. Oh, come and let us worship. And what? Bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. There's that spirit of humility that we are to have as we come before the Lord. But there's also supposed to be joy as well as we come before the Lord. And it's not that humility and joy are you know, opposites of each other. They actually complement each other very well. When we truly understand our humble circumstances in relationship to the righteousness of God, we are filled with an inexpressible joy that God would condescend, that God would do like an adult that bends down to a child to talk to that child and to understand that God would do that with us, that he would come down to our level and he would speak to us that we might receive the words of life and be his children. And so we read in Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2, O come, Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And then finally, God calls us to have a heart of gratitude. Gratitude is the understanding that everything we have comes from God. And as we mature in our faith, uh, we will be able to worship with thanks, even when we're in the midst of... Of difficult circumstances, you know. Psalm 100 says, "Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name." But I, th- but I think about uh, Acts 16:25, and in Acts 16, uh, Paul and Silas are put in prison, and these are the words we read. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It's so easy to read Psalm 100, verse 4, and think, yes, praise the Lord in circumstances like this. But what about those times when great difficulties and trials come? Do we have that heart of gratitude rather than focusing upon the things that we see that are wrong with our life? May we give uh, praise to God for who He is. Well, God calls us, Jesus Christ calls us to be a worshiping church and and not a worshiping church just because that's what churches do. But brothers and sisters, because we have been redeemed. And I want you to know that it is my prayer for you and I pray that you are praying this for one another that we might grow in our understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for us that we might understand our salvation in its nuances that each and every day it may be like a treasure that we you know, we just turn this crystal in all the different angles and we see the beauty of the salvation that we have because it's then and only then that we truly can appreciate and that we come as a church to worship and to glorify His name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, so much, so, so, so much, God, for the redemption that You have given to us. Lord, I pray that we would never get to the point to where we're just wrote about these things. And Father, if there is anyone here tonight, I don't care what age, what sex, what who it is, Lord, but if, if, if we are here tonight and we are taking uh, for granted the things that you have done for us, I pray that you might open our eyes to see the glories of what you have done in giving us eternal life. And Lord, I pray that this week that our perspectives would be way different. Even as we go through our week, Lord, may we be people who have a song in our heart in praise to our God. Lord, may we be, may our eyes be open to see the beauty of your creation and the things that you have done. And may our hearts be filled with sincerity and with humility and with joy and with gratitude to you, O God. And may we praise you according to your word. We thank you. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing Psalm 96D, Ascribe unto the Lord.